Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. You can follow us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can follow us on Instagram, Matchpoint Canada. We are also on YouTube. We're the official podcast of Tennis Canada and members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And Mike, this week, you had a great chance to speak with an American player who, you know, we've seen at the upper echelons in the game in the past, and I think he's one of these faces that is now looking to get back up uh, at the peak of the game in the ATP rankings in Ryan Harrison. Yeah, Ryan Harrison took some time out of his uh, world team tennis schedule where he's playing with the San Diego Aviators and uh, talked a bit about the unique format of the event, what he likes about it, how he's trying to add some new elements to his game as he prepares to return to competitive action this summer. And uh, also just on his comfort level overall with uh, both preparing for the U.S. Open, and what the uh, World Team Tennis event has also been doing to protect its players. Uh, as we know, they uh, sent one of their players packing recently, so uh, definitely seem to be taking things quite seriously on the uh, health front there. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Danielle Collins uh, did have to go home after leaving the site, which I guess players were explicitly told they were not allowed to do, but perhaps she uh, she had missed the memo or something went wrong there. Uh, nevertheless, she is gone. Ryan Harrison, though, still there. And uh, a player that I guess I look at his career and, I mean, the current ranking right now really makes no sense relative to his level of play and the level of play he can produce on the tennis court. Big serve, solid forehand, and, and someone who has been a, a top 40 in the uh, player in the past and someone who's you know pushed into kind of second, third round uh, appearances of Grand Slams. I got so many numbers stuck in my head right now, but I think when I checked the rankings the other day, he was outside of the top 400 because of that big layoff due to injury. And uh, Ryan Harrison's one of those players that – it's funny, on the one hand, he seems really young to me because he's still in his 20s, he's 28 years old. But then on the other, he's kind of got like this veteran aura about him because it does feel like he's been around for quite some time. Um, and we talked about that a little bit as well. And, um, you know, when you look at how the, the men's game is going these days, you know, if you're 28 years old and coming back from injury, you should still feel like you've got plenty of time ahead of you to to get back on track. And uh, so we chatted about that. and. Uh, I really liked when we got to talking a bit about um, Canadian-American tennis because you and me, Ben, always like to talk about how it'd be cool if we had a rivalry that established itself in the next few years between both the men and the women in our two countries being so close. And uh, and he spoke to that, and he was really keen on the idea. He actually went so far as to suggest having some sort of exhibition, tournament, competitive tournament between the two countries and mentioned, I guess, a bunch of his buddies on the U.S. side that he'd like to see in there. Um, and, and we've always talked about how it'd be kind of cool to develop that between Canada and the U.S. in, in tennis. Yeah, yeah, that would be amazing to see. And there's no shortage of uh, stars, I think, on the young front in terms of early 20s, American and Canadian, obviously us with Dennis and Felix, uh, but then with like a Francis Tiafo, and you look how far Taylor Fritz has come recently. And I think there are parallels in terms of their big serving veterans. We look at our big serving veteran like Emilos Raonic on the men's side. And then you look at a, a John Isner, who's, of course, American and still, uh, you know, towards the top of the game. Or someone like a Sam Querrey, guys who are uh, seasoned, experienced veterans who kind of rely on that big serving style. So we have a good, like, contrast of styles, similar crop of players. 
and Ryan Harrison. I'll, I mean, I'll make a comparison to one of our Canadian players after this interview, but I, I don't think he's that dissimilar from uh, one of the Canadians we also have in the mix. Okay, so let's leave that hanging, and uh, here is my interview with Ryan Harrison, and then Ben will fill in the blanks on what Canadian player reminds him of, uh, of Ryan. Today on Matchpoint Canada, we head south to interview American tennis player Ryan Harrison, who's been playing world team tennis for the San Diego Aviators this summer, preparing for a return to the ATP. Ryan reached a career high of number 40 in the rankings back in 2017, a year he also won the event in Memphis, won the French Open doubles championship, and also got married. Uh, Ryan, thanks for taking the time and, and welcome to Matchpoint Canada. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on. As I'm reading all those uh, highlights from 2017, that must be a year for you both both personally and professionally that, that kind of stands out above the rest. Yeah, definitely. 2017 was a, was a great year all around. I think that a lot of times your uh, your personal life can lead to success on the court, and, and that really seemed like it translated well for me. Uh, I had a great start to the year in Australia and then Lido in Memphis, and that translated into some double success. So, you know, all that along with getting married and, and starting that chapter of my life was just a really special year. Yeah, I don't doubt it. It's, uh, it's kind of strange for me thinking of you as a veteran tennis player because you're only 28 years old, but uh, you have put in your time. It's been 10 years, I think, now since your first Grand Slam appearance at the Aussie Open. Do you see yourself as a, as a veteran at this point? It's, it's weird. I, I feel like age-wise, no. Career-wise, yes. I think that with the way that the careers are played out now, you see a lot of guys peaking well into their 30s. So it's very much possible that there's a lot, a lot of good years left, left ahead of me, which would, you know, not put me on the, the back link of my career. But I do know that the experience that I've had because I started so young can be a valuable asset. So I want to draw on that too as I enter this stage, uh, you know, getting close to 30. Yeah, I mean, there seems like there's so many guys and, and women in their 30s who are still having so much success, and I don't even just mean the big three, but even otherwise. I mean, even watching Tommy Haas the other day in, in an exhibition match, he was looking really sharp, and I think he's 42 or 43. Um, what, what do you still have left that you want to prove and that you want to accomplish before you do, whenever you know that happens, hang up the racket? Well, you know, I've had some really strong slam success in doubles. I've had some slam success, uh, you know, multiple different services. I feel like that my singles game, there's a, a little bit of area that I haven't tapped into, that top 30, top 20, and hopefully eventually top 10 level. Um, I feel like at various times in my career, I've knocked on the door of guys who are getting seated at slams. I've been within eight ranking spots of being seated at majors. Um, multiple times and I feel like that's a big milestone because that helps with the draws opening up and you can really go from there so uh, for me you know in the near future my focus is getting back to the top 50 and then eventually getting seated at Grand Slams and um, with so many people peaking in their 30s now the top 10 goal is still very much something that I chase after. Yeah you're, you're just a kid when you compare yourself to some of those other guys that are still going. I, um, I was watching on the ATP website one of their My Story features with you recalling your earlier days when you had to face your father in a club tournament at, I think you were only like 11 years old, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, you didn't win that, that match, and, uh, and you talked about how your dad never gave you a free pass, which is something I can definitely relate to thinking of my younger days on a tennis court. What was it like when you did first beat your old man, and, and when did that happen? At what age? Yeah, I mean, that was a cool experience. I think that a lot of tennis players, uh, just based on the global 
spread of it that we all kind of grow up in an environment where we start to establish ourselves in our city and in our club as one of the better players. And for me, uh, because my dad was such a high-level college player and played a little bit professionally, he was uh, the last person in town that I had to try and beat when it came to, um, you know, just establishing myself as one of the better players in the region. And eventually, um, 12, 13 years old, I was able to start beating him, and we ended up moving down to John Newcomb's Tennis Academy and taking it from the local um, areas into more of the academy feel. But that, that moment when we played each other in the city championship, I think it was an eye-opener for my parents that if I was going to pursue this tennis dream, that I needed to get somewhere where kids my age could push me. Yeah, that's a memory you'll have for life, no doubt. A special special moment between you guys, I'm sure. Um, yes. You're back to playing world team tennis right now, which is not a first for you. But what's the appeal of this format? I mean, obviously right now there's no other tennis in town, so the options are limited. But even in the past, what, what has drawn you to play in this event? Well, there's a few things. I mean, first of all, the atmosphere when you're playing for a team and you're playing with a team, it's uh, not something that you experience a lot on the tour. I think it's important to have uh, good social chemistry and good, uh, good feel with other players and learn how to be a part of a team. I think that that helps with your people skills. I think that it helps with overall just being happy out there. So to be in an environment where you're playing with people, it, uh, it really helps as far as just building your relationships. Uh, the format's very interesting. It's very quick. It makes you have to play a lot of pressure points. Um, no ad scoring, first to five. Any slow start whatsoever can put you really behind in almost an unrecoverable situation. I think it's important to learn how to play a lot of pressure points, and that really gives you uh, confidence once you come through. So World Team Tennis provides that opportunity. And then ultimately, you know, a lot of matches is always a good thing. You always hear about people who are trying to get their momentum going. They need to get their match count up, and they need to get in that in that uh, pressure moment more often. And so playing 14 matches in 19 days, it allows for a lot of players to get uh, really good match experience as we lead into this part of the season that's going to lead back into the main ATP Tour. Well, one of the cool features to me, you know, and, and from a fan perspective, I think is probably the fact that players can get subbed in and out of matches, even though they're so short. Um, I, I grew up playing hockey and I was a goalie. And I remember how awful I felt anytime my coach gave me the hook and took me off the ice. What's it feel like when your coach says, you know what, sorry, we're, we're taking you out. And we're going to, we're going to go to plan B here. Well, we've had a couple of different options on our team. Uh, we have a lot of good players, and uh, we've been really fighting for that last playoff spot. We had a couple of tough losses early, so we're looking to try and claw that last playoff position. So I think that everyone understands it's kind of a do-or-die situation. Um, I've been playing really well, so I've been fortunate not to have to worry about the hook, but there's been a couple of instances on our team where everyone's had to put their ego aside and, and really go and, and do what's best for the team. And, I think that's important. You know, I think that it's a trick to be able to, to keep your confidence up and still have belief in yourself whenever you are in the position where you could potentially hold out. I think it's important to learn that when you're playing for a team, it's, it's, it's about the bigger picture and we're all playing for something here. So, uh, you know, that kind of goes back into understanding it's, a, it's an unselfish environment for what's typically a very selfish sport. And I think that's important to learn. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, We've seen other tennis events this summer and, and in the spring try uh, some interesting twists on the game to try and challenge tradition a little bit. And now's probably the best time to try any any of these new items. Is there anything from either World Team Tennis or one of the other exhibition events that you've seen that you've thought, 
hey, you know what, that could work in mainstream tennis to try and increase fan engagement. Yeah, I think it's important that with the way that social media and the way that uh, sports watching has transformed um, back, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, people were kind of taught to watch sports in a very, uh, almost like they were in a movie, very quiet, not much engagement. And then as things have transitioned, the uh, market for people feeling like they're invested and really wanting to cheer and have a good time and be social, I think that that's brought in. Uh, a, new, a new level of fan engagement for people who maybe aren't even diehard tennis fans but just want to go and enjoy a social event with, uh, with them. So the more that tennis can bring an environment that even your non-diehard tennis fans can go to a tournament and have a couple of drinks, relax, and have a good time with other people, I think that that can translate into more popularity, and I'd love to see that happen. Yeah, right on. I mean, it's a it's a sport also that has its ebbs and flows. I mean, in the States, obviously, so many great players in the past where, where tennis was maybe uh, more popular at, at times. And I'm sure in places like Switzerland right now, it's it's obviously near the top of things. And, and here in Canada, for us, it's definitely rising. Who were some of the American players that you really looked up to as a, as a kid? Were you a, an Agassi fan or a Sampras guy? Or what were uh, what were the players that you got got hooked on growing up? Well, um, I really loved watching that rivalry between Pete and Andre growing up. I thought that that sort of era of tennis for America was just a really, really bright spot. Um, they had two very different personalities, but were all great in their own right, and they, they both did it their way. You know, Pete, even in his Hall of Fame speech, talked about how he had so much pride in the fact that he did it the quiet way, and Andre was definitely not the quiet way. Andre was was loud, and he was bolsterous, and he had the personality, and he wanted to be the guy who was uh, who was hitting these electric shots that really made the crowd rise, and you saw his emotional last match at the U.S. Open where he just talked about his engagement with the crowd over the 20 years that he played there, so that rivalry showed, um, you know, I think the both sides of greatness that you can have one guy be a complete opposite of the other and they can still be both um, just true Hall of Famers and icons for our sport. And that was what really grew me and I always envisioned uh, trying to emulate that. Did you lean one way or the other or are you uh, going to sit on the fence and, uh, and, and plead both cases? I mean, I liked Agassi a lot when I was a kid, but I have to say I've got a lot more respect, I think, for what Pete accomplished now when I look back. How about you? Well, going into the way that the, the game is played now, uh, you don't see as many traditional serve and volley types like Pete anymore. So I love watching the old highlights of him coming in and how much pressure he put on guys. Uh, there's been a lot of court speed changes. They play with different balls than they did back then. So things have kind of adapted for more baseline style tennis. Um, I loved watching Pete bring it to guys and come in uh, relentlessly and he knew what he was doing. And then watching that chess match play out um, I met them both personally, and they are honestly both great. Um, they've been so cool to me, and, and they've always opened their, opened their minds to trying to help me, even at my stage of my career. They've continued to voice support for all of American tennis. So I think that we're just lucky to have had icons like that who are still great people. I love hearing that, that you can cheer for both of them, appreciate both of them. It seems nowadays people are either in one player's camp or another, and why can't we all just get along? Um, you guys had so much success, as I mentioned, in the States, and, and that era was really special, of course. I grew up watching tennis in that era, too. And, and here in Canada, we didn't really have anyone at that time who was challenging in the, in the singles game anyways. 
And uh, we're kind of just scratching the surface here in our country. And, and since we are a Canadian podcast, I have to ask you, has there been kind of a, a buzz about what the Canadians have been doing the past couple of years? Because it sure seems like we've got a lot of uh, up and coming talent at the moment. Yeah, definitely. You know, I grew up with Milos. Um, I was playing a little bit up for my age bracket. Milos and I had junior tennis uh, tournaments together all the time. I was always blown away with his professionalism. I thought that even um, as a teenager, 18, 19, 22, would be out working on his game with his coach. Um, you know, I was, I was also one of the guys doing that, and I remember seeing a lot of Milos. You know, we would see each other 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the evenings, even sometimes after tough losses. Um, you know, and, and it just became very evident that he was so committed to being a, a top-level professional tennis player and having that serve already that was just a natural gift from uh, a higher power, he has always been focused on translating and, and uh, developing his other parts of his game. And uh, that was really cool. It paved the way for some of these young guys like um, Felix and Denis Shapovalov and a number of the other guys who are looking to break through. Obviously, Vashik Pospisil has been knocking on the door and had very great success been an abundance of really good Canadians and I think that they've got a really good foundation and great great team of people up there and clearly it's working. Yeah we're super excited about it. I'm personally looking forward to getting a little bit of an American Canadian rivalry in tennis like what we had in hockey when I was growing up as a kid. I think that'd be pretty cool to just bump up the interest between the two countries. Yeah it would be really cool. I mean we have a couple of young Americans um I would like to contribute also. Um, it would be really cool to have a situation where guys like myself and Jack Sock and other top Americans who have been up there um, nation with the young guys. And who knows, maybe somebody one day will, will put together a, a USA versus Canada lineup and we can get myself, Jack, Taylor Fritz, Francis, and Tommy and all these guys and, um, you know, really have a good battle against some of the Canadians who have already established themselves and also the up-and-comers. I think that we – potential for a lot of great fun tennis matches there I think you're on to something there we can both claim uh, the, uh, the that idea and work towards it I think a lot of people would enjoy it um, it it's been a challenging few months obviously as we we wrap up here Ryan um, and thanks for taking the time with us again on match point Canada today what what have you done to stay positive what are some of the positives for you that have come out of this pandemic and uh, and what has been maybe your biggest challenge throughout this time I think that um, the biggest challenge has been the easiest thing for me to answer just because it's, it's patience. Undoubtedly, it's patience. Because I was coming off of an injury-prone uh, year last year. I had an elbow surgery late in the year after sustaining a tendon tear in my elbow. And so starting up this year, I was just really motivated to get going and reestablish myself um, in a positive trend. So having COVID hit, obviously, it's affected so many people from a health and personal side of things. But just from a strictly sports side of things, it was disappointing that I wasn't able to um, immediately get back out there and show some of the hard work and rehab I put in in order to get myself back to the level I know I can play. So staying patient throughout has, has been tough. Um, and that's been something I've really focused on. And then also, I looked at different ways that I could kind of come back with something that maybe I didn't have before. So I added a lot of focus on developing my fitness. I started doing a lot of stuff in the gym that I hadn't done previously, just from a little bit of an adjustment standpoint. I lost a little bit of weight, so I wanted to play, get my playing weight a little bit lighter. 
I think that on the on the tennis circuit, I've always been on the heavier side uh, as far as a guy who was built more like a, a baseball player or a football player. So I, I think that trying to transform my body um, into these guys who can play these five-hour crazy long matches. I think it's important for me uh, if I want to start making deep runs in the, in the majors and singles. Um, so that's been my biggest focus is just making sure that when things resume, I'm prepared to, to go as deep as I can. How are you feeling comfort wise with, you know, the Cincinnati event and the U S open that are going to be held in, in New York? How are you feeling comfort wise with where we're at with the pandemic right now and the safety measures in place uh, and maybe you could talk about at World Team Tennis, what they're doing to make you feel, you know, that you're safe and in a good spot. There was obviously that incident where Danielle Collins was, um, you know, sent away um, because of breaking protocols. So it seems to me they're taking it pretty seriously. Um, can you can you speak about how you're feeling now and, and in the next few weeks with what's coming up? Obviously, we had some situations with, uh, you know, the event in Atlanta where Francis Tiafo tested positive. And we had some other events that were just not quite experienced as world team tennis was so they learned a lot and it's shown because they have had zero positive tests so far um what they've done in our protocols have have worked they've been in place we've all felt safe we've all felt like it was enjoyable and we've loved playing so i think it's been a a, a tremendous success to this point and, and everybody has felt comfortable but also in a way that has not made you feel like you were too isolated to enjoy it. So I think it's been a great, a great balance and it, it proves that it is doable as long as players understand that it's very important that we all respect these times. That's why I think it was important that they established even uh, with Danielle, uh, that there was no, there was no gray area here. That if someone broke protocol, this is the way that tennis had to come back and this is the way it was going to be done. I think that it shows that it is doable. I think that it's important that the players um, know how they can uh, just one person can affect the entire event by making a bad decision. So I think that we all have to be very cautious and respectful. Well, Ryan, we want to just thank you for taking the time to join us today. I know you've had a hectic schedule down there and we're looking forward to seeing you back in, uh, I don't want to say real competition, but you know what I mean, ATP competition and uh, with that elbow uh, feeling good and uh, the new things you've put into place, all the best when you do return to action. Uh, except when you play our Canadian players. <laughs> hey, I totally understand, and, and I get it. I'll be out there fighting as hard as I can to just make every match as competitive and horrible as, as possible. Thank you guys so much for having me on, and it's great to talk to you all, and uh, have a great rest of your time on the coverage for World Team Tennis, and look forward to talking to you again soon. There you have it, Mike's interview with American player Ryan Harrison, uh, still just 28 years old. And as you mentioned uh, before we let in, still plenty of time to turn this thing around. And here is my semi kind of comparable to one Canadian player we do have. And uh, he recently turned 30 years old. Ryan Harrison has also had solid success on the doubles front. He's won four ATP doubles titles. He won a French Open in doubles. And we look at one of our very best Canadian doubles players is Vashik Pospisil. And someone who had a back injury uh, and struggles with form, which kept him out for a significant period of time. And then another player who's kind of 
broken inside at one point career high of 25 uh kind of felt like a solid top 40 top 50 player when he's playing his good tennis and making sort of second third round appearances of grand slams you look at the weapons of ryan harrison and vashik pospisil i don't think they're that much different i think vashik is probably stronger overall on the doubles front and we see how unbelievably well he's playing in singles but i think there's a bit of a parallel to be made there yeah, I thought that was where you were going with it because that's who I would have sort of compared uh, Ryan Harrison to as well. And Vashik currently, I think, 93rd in the rankings, but was certainly rising at the start of the year as uh, things were kicking off in, in 2020 and hoping he can get back to that level as well. Um, and, and yeah, Vashik, same sort of idea. Like, he is a veteran, but it doesn't seem in some ways that he, he should be because uh, he still has that baby face to some uh, extent. And yeah. Uh, but but it's it's great that we've got those veteran guys in Canada like Milos and Vashik, and then the younger ones, Dennis and Felix as well, to talk about the men's game, who can kind of look to those two in terms of just their their professionalism and their ability to shake off you know injury bugs and 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 numerous injuries in Milos's case and a, a serious one for Vashik as well, and just how they stay focused and committed to the game. And again, to just take this American Canadian comparison a little bit further. Um, the U.S. obviously has more players than, than we do. Uh, you know, their population is 10 times the size of Canada. They've got so many more in the top 100. On the men's side, you know, the U.S. has eight guys in the top 100. We've got four. On the women's side, the divide is so much greater. The women in the yeah. States have 17 in the top 100, and we have one. Um, that being said, if we did have a little Canadian-American competition, I feel pretty comfortable with how we could match up because of the, the players that we do have at the top, I think match up just as well with theirs. Like you talked about their big servers. Well, I'll take Milos any day over the Isner Opelka query trio because his game has so much more depth to it. And he's accomplished so much more at the slam level over his career, I would say. Um, yeah. And and then, you know, you got Felix and Dennis who are both uh, top 20 in the rankings now, just inside the top 20. And I would take them over, you know, Fritz and, and Tiafo. And, and then I like the depth that Vashik would add. So to me, I think on the men's side especially, I'll take uh, Canada there and give them the edge. And on the women's side with a healthy Bianca, uh, I think Jeannie still has something left to contribute as she's proven this summer in the exhibitions she's played, which is yep. encouraging. And then Leila Annie Fernandez, not to put too much pressure on her shoulders, but I also think she's a very encouraging up-and-comer for, for Canada as well. So I think the event, if it ever did happen, would be a fun one to watch and would be pretty competitive. Yeah, well, now I'm I'm kind of visualizing like a Labor Cup style format, U.S. versus Canada. And uh, if you can hype something like this up, build it once a year, maybe Canada hosts one year, then they go back to the United States. I, I think it's something that could honestly draw in a lot of fans. Maybe you do it a split event with men and women. You mix in mixed doubles. You have the women competing, squaring off one another, uh, trading for points. I, I think it's a fascinating idea. And you're right. I, I think with the superstar players that we do have at the top, uh, we could certainly hang with the Americans. And probably on the men's side, I would argue, maybe be the favorite, actually. Hey, one other thing I want to say about my chat with uh, with Ryan was he had a lot of praise, a lot of kind words for Milos, someone who's roughly the same age as him. And, and he mentioned yeah. they had played each other quite a bit growing up and that he was always so impressed with with Milos's work ethic uh, and the way he practiced and, and his attitude. And so that was really nice to hear. And, and, you know, you and I have only had a chance to speak with Milos once, which was just a few weeks ago. And I think we came away with that uh, from that feeling, uh, you know, really impressed with 
with just his outlook and and his attitude. And uh, it's interesting. You think you you know a player on some level, but after you speak with them, it definitely opens your eyes. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But in right. his case, I think we both came away feeling uh, a lot more, uh, even more respect, if that's the right word for for what he's done and, and what he's trying to still do with uh, with what's left in his career. Yeah, certainly his his focus, I think, during this stretch of off time has, has been pretty unbelievable. The amount of time and structure he has in his training, you can tell he's such a focus-minded person and has goals set that uh, he's striving towards. You're listening to Matchpoint Canada. Remember, find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We're also on Instagram match point Canada and we should probably cover some news updated because a lot of people still feel the U.S. Open is in doubt though we have seen positive signs in terms of the curve flattening in New York Uh, but a couple of ATP challenger events were recently canceled that I'll just mention Um, two events in Orlando were called off and we already knew uh, the tail end of last week the city open in Washington has been called off so uh, for the challenger events I guess not quite as big a deal except for certain you know lower ranked players wanting to get out there get match play obviously get some prize money that's a loss and uh, losing the city open could be a big deal I think for a lot of players wanting to feel the ball as strong as they can for the U.S. Open now you're only going to get one lead-up tournament with the Western and Southern Open on site. Um, I don't know about your confidence level of the U.S. Open happening, if it's like 50-50 in your mind, or it's really hard to gauge right now, but uh, still losing the City Open in Washington, knowing we just have one hard court event before a Grand Slam uh, causes me, you know, a little bit of concern. Yeah, I mean, my feelings change on this almost daily. I feel like, you know, you you hear a piece of news to compare to other sports, like how the NHL went all of last week without a single COVID positive test among 24 teams that are going to be competing for the Stanley Cup. And that makes you feel positive. And it's a sign that's encouraging because you think, well, okay, if it's done properly and the bubbles are kept and people respect that, then it seems like it can work. And that's a lot of players that we're talking about between 24 teams of, of NHL players with a roster of, you know, between 20 and 30 guys right now, plus coaching staff. So that made me feel pretty good about things. And then you look at Major League Baseball and what a disaster that seems to be. Of course, they've operated in a completely different way of doing things, which I think any of us could have kind of looked at and said, what the heck is going on? Sort of like when we looked at the Adria Tennis Tour and we were just baffled by what was happening there. So, I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear what you have to do to give yourself the best chance to protect your athletes and protect everyone involved and and give your product the best chance of taking center stage. So, you know, kudos to the NHL, shame on Major League Baseball, and hopefully tennis can get it right as things get going. And even if there isn't enough lead up and as much practice or or real match competition as people would like, um, I think still you got to look at the positives there. And as long as people are healthy, that's, that's what really matters. But one thing you did touch upon that's certainly true is it really does suck for players who are, you know, not able to qualify for that event and are missing out on the challenger level, ITF level events that they would have been participating in. Um, I spoke with someone we've had on the program before a few days ago, Kennedy um, Schaefer from uh, the United States. And uh, she was talking about how she, she feels she's in great shape. She's been practicing so hard all these months. She's ready to go, but there's nowhere to go to yet. So many tennis players in that situation and we feel for them. Um, and yet that being said, can't rush back into things too soon and if smaller level events don't feel like uh, you know the conditions are right for them to safely do things then got to err on the side of caution and, and thumbs up for them doing that. 
Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing because we have seen the ITF event schedule and calendar basically kind of wiped for the summer for the most part. So we won't be seeing those lower level events. I think a lot of people didn't expect to see Novak Djokovic play at the U.S. Open um, end of August based on the reports we were hearing a few weeks ago. That is now kind of changing in flux because uh, he has been seen practicing on hard courts and here's the key kind of piece of news that tells you he does intend to play at Flushing Meadows ordering U.S. Open balls to his home uh, would tell you that he is keen and rearing to go on the hard court surface Uh, Rafael Nadal has only been practicing on clay from the reports I've read so it sounds like he's uh, likely to skip the event perhaps Andy Murray announced his intentions to go earlier in the week uh, so I suppose we don't have a big four anymore we know Roger Federer is out but uh, great to have Andy Murray at the event um, as he intends to go and Novak Djokovic kind of making a 180 here are, are you surprised that he is keen to play at the U.S. Open make that travel and nothing surprises me anymore with Novak Djokovic. So uh, <laughs> you could put anything out there and I'd probably believe it. I was going to make some joke about, you know, him staring at the tennis balls with positive energy so that he can hit them more cleanly when he gets to New York. But uh, no, nothing surprises me. And, and who knows how things are in his bubble and with his camp. And I mean, I understand just from a personal point of view how I can go up and down with how I'm feeling related to things as well. So, I mean, I can yeah. be... You know, to be serious for a moment, like I can understand how you might change your stance on what you were planning on doing versus what you feel now that you're comfortable to do. Um, and Andy Murray would be great to see him back playing. I mean, like anywhere, anytime, just to, just after everything he's been through the past few years. Um, will be interesting to see what happens with Nadal. Um, you know, on the one hand, you'd think being so close to Roger's record at the Slams, you'd want to go and, and give every opportunity. But that being said, what's the point of playing the U.S. and then French back-to-back if you feel it's just going to weaken your chances because it's going to tire you out and you won't have had enough prep on the hard courts and maybe it makes more sense to give yourself one really great chance by just sticking with the clay and staying over in Europe right now. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me for sure. Um, I I should note, because you mentioned the Adria Tennis Tour before and that fiasco, and of course, Novak Djokovic was one of the players who did test positive for COVID-19. Grigor Dimitrov was the first reported positive case, and his appearance um, and intent to go to the U.S. Open is currently in doubt, and that is because he has felt so ill and uh, had some debilitating side effects from the coronavirus. So, you know, I think when we just kind of hear the storylines on the surface of athletes testing positive for COVID-19 maybe as kind of the fan kicks in you think oh bummer like we won't get to see them play but in the more human element of it this is such a serious virus that even someone like a high performance level athlete like a Grigor Dimitrov who is at the peak of his sport uh, can still get very very sick from this thing which really tells you how serious this is and something you you really uh have to take seriously at all times yeah and I mean I think people are really quick to dismiss you know the effects of COVID-19 in people who are you know generally considered to be younger but that's not necessarily I don't think proven by anything and as we can see that it can yeah maybe you're not talking necessarily a life or death death situation for most but it is something that can stick with you and have adverse effects on you and if you're a high performance athlete who's used to having a certain, whether it be lung capacity or, or threshold for you know, endurance or whatever the case may be, then this could take you down just enough to uh, make you lose that competitive edge. And so I, I certainly respect that. I mean, 
I'm, uh, you know, for just turned 40 years old. And uh, yeah, it's something that I'm concerned about having a history of, you know, breathing issues, asthma, uh, pneumonia when I was a kid. Uh, I mean, it's something that concerns me. So, um, you know, it's, um, it's something that you just have to uh, be mindful of in, in every unique situation, respect how people are feeling. And I do think Dimitrov is what back playing UTS two right now with the uh, Murata glue uh, event. At least I yes, think, I, saw his name I, in think there. I think you're I guess right. He's, he's giving it a go, but obviously it seems he's finding it harder than, than anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. So it's obviously something to be careful with and I won't hold it against any athlete who is say opting not to play any kind of tournament. If they want to skip the grand slam season, you know, if they want to skip the remainder of 2020, I, I see people on Twitter criticizing athletes for, for opting out of certain seasons, whether it be the NFL or MLB. And uh, I just don't think that's fair. Uh, you don't know if they've got someone who's exactly. Um, immunocompromised in their family, elderly parents they're caring for or, or want to keep in their bubble and see on a regular basis. So yeah, who are we? Who is anyone to to point the finger? You know, you take care of yourself, you do what you're comfortable with, and hopefully you're being prudent about it. But otherwise, um, yeah, like you said, any player that's opting not to go, that's their choice and and you got to respect it. Yeah, yeah. And just on the women's side quickly in terms of US Open, the names that I'm hearing right now, look, these are just reports. It's not uh, full confirmation. This might change. But the two names that I'm kind of consistently hearing that won't be playing the US Open, though this might change, as I say, are Ashley Barty and Simona Halep by the sounds of things, I, I think there's a good chance that those two, obviously high-profile players, including the world number one, uh, could be skipping the first of the two Grand Slams that we uh, get in our return to tennis. Uh, but, you know, we, we still have so much superstar power there. Serena Williams committing to play, I think, is massive. Uh, by all accounts, Bianca Andreescu is going to be ready to play. And it's not a scenario where she has to worry about defending her title either, obviously, with, with this rankings, not rankings freeze anymore, but extension, 18-month uh, kind of calendar carryover with your points uh, really changes things, I think, in terms of pressure. Um, the American Sophia Cannon, of course, will be there just winning the Australian Open and a number of other top American players. So the field there on the women's side, I think, is going to be very, very strong still, even if we don't get stars like Barty, Halep, and maybe a few others. You imagine if Sophia Cannon was the number one seed at the U.S. Open. I mean, talk about how far she's come in a, yeah. in a year. Obviously, it would take a little assistance from players not going for that to happen. But I did see someone tweet that the other day, and it kind of raised an eyebrow. But, um, mm. you know, and in terms of players that we're most excited to see back on the court, uh, I can't think of anyone I'm more excited to see play a competitive match whether it be Grand Slam or otherwise, than uh, Bianca Andreescu. So after everything she's been through, and and there's that, uh, you know, more than typical excitement about her returning as well, because she's already proven in the past that she doesn't need a big lead-in to start kicking butt on the tennis court again. So That's not right. that I'm saying, hey, she's my favorite, you know, for the Open. Uh, nothing would surprise me with her the way she's operated in the past. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, pretty amazing to think we haven't seen her play a professional match uh, since the WTA finals in Shenzhen end of last year, early November. Um, I think losing that match to Simona Halep, I believe, was her, her last competitive match. So it has been many, many months and uh, I'm confident she will be ready. Uh, fingers crossed that the U.S. Open from Flushing Meadows does happen. Well, Mike, uh, thanks so much for your interview with American Ryan Harrison this week, who is a, a great listen. And we will keep pumping out all the content here at Matchpoint Canada as we're gearing up for the return to tennis. 
we're nearing August and that's kind of when the calendar is starting up again. So I'm getting more and more excited as uh, the summer goes on. Hey, we're finally going to have some real live tennis matches that matter to talk about again. It's been incredible to sustain this podcast weekly with you for the last five months. And actually <laughs> it's never been like a problem. We've never had to, uh, you know, really wonder what it is we're going to talk to talk about in any given week. But that being said, it will be nice to have a little bit more tangible and, and you know, timely, you know, tennis action to, uh, to discuss with you. So looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.